morning. Of course, I forgot to, we good? I forgot to mic check every single time I do that. Great. Um, but yeah, my name is Jesse, and uh, as, as Chris said, I'm moving on now um, full-time, and I just wanted to say to everybody here just how thankful I am to be able to serve the body of Redeemer. Um, it's been kind of a long process for me to move from the internship to part-time staff to this now, and I'm super excited just to see kind of what uh, God has in store. Um, so I'm an elder pastor candidate, um, and I'm learning a lot through that process, and I'm just growing in my my joy and my love that I have to serve all of you. So I am super thankful. Uh, I'm happy. It's mornings like this that I need because I was, for some reason, I just was feeling a little off this morning. Uh, we came in, and there was a urinal flooding, and we we're like f- fixing it, and I was like, gosh, really? On a day like today? And then I sit down, and I'm starting to meet some new faces today, and, um, and then we just start worshiping, and I was reminded just how awesome it is to be able to come together, to gather as a body of believers, and to worship Jesus. So anyways, that's me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, so today we're going to carry on in Mark, um, and I don't know of anyone that I have ever met who enjoys having the flu or a cold, or any type of sickness. It's not a fun thing to deal with. Personally, I'm kind of a little bit wimpy when it comes to this. Uh, I get what's called a man cold. At least that's what I've been told is what it's called. Uh, Meaning that as soon as I begin to feel any type of symptom at all that, that resembles any type of sniffle or sickness, I start to whine and act pitiful. I need a day off. I need to sleep in. I need to drink a lot of water. And all this is to my shame because I know of how many individuals deal with physical issues far greater than a cold every single day. And I know that it's hard to face those struggles day in and day out, but I still think it's safe to say that physical things are something that nobody, physical sickness is something that nobody likes to deal with. Now most of our view on being sick tends to Uh, revolve around the physical realm. And this is absolutely a real and serious place, but in our humanity there is a sickness that goes far deeper than just the physical. Today we're going to learn in the Gospel of Mark how unwell we really, really are apart from Jesus. And I hope that we can see by the end of our time today the joy that we can have in Christ and the implications that this has on our lives. So if you all stand with me, we're going to read, carrying on in Mark, um, Mark 2, it's going to be verses 13 through 22. Uh, That's on page 837 of those ESV Bibles in your row. If you don't have a Bible, we have some extra ones out by the connection table. We'd love for you to take that. Um, Just dive in and, and learn from the Word of God. Let's read. He went out again beside the sea, And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for the fall break weekend and that people can have a little time to rest and the kids get a little time off from school. Um, I just thank you just for the wonderful grace that it is for us to gather as a body of believers, to hear from your word, to worship you in song. Um, And I just pray today as we work through this last section of chapter 2 in Mark that that you would just um, work powerfully. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the, uh, the teaching and not any, uh, any act of us, Lord. And I just pray that you would work through our inadequacies, my inadequacies, Father God. And we thank you that we have you to rest on and that we don't have to rest in our own power to be right before you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Y'all can have a seat. So I'm going to work through... Uh, a few main points today. I just want to lay them out before we get started. Uh, I want us to notice first how Jesus relates to us, and then I want to move on to the joy that we can have in Christ. And then lastly, we're going to loop back around to the middle of this section, and we're going to talk about some of the practical implications that this has and how we ought to relate to the world and also one another. So how Jesus relates to us. The scene is set here for us in Mark, and Uh, we have been working through a pattern so far in this book, in Jesus' ministry, where we see that Christ comes and he teaches. And as he teaches, he starts to couple that with actual physical acts, and then the crowds gather. He does more healing, more teaching, and then eventually he has to escape because he is both fully human and fully God, and the human side of Jesus has to get away to actually rest. So he goes to commune with God the Father, and in verse 13 we see that he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So then he passes by Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Now Levi, later we will learn in Mark, is also Matthew, the future writer of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, There's parallel accounts in two other Gospels, both in Matthew and in Luke, and we learn that as soon as Jesus came to Levi in Luke 5, he left everything and followed Jesus. He dropped everything that he was doing. Chances are he had witnessed some of the teaching of Christ and even seen some of the miracles. And so as soon as Christ comes up to him and says, hey, you follow me, he was probably ecstatic. Even so ecstatic to throw a huge reception that we read later on in this passage. But before we get there, we need to understand the significance of Levi being called by Jesus. Back in this time in Palestine, um, the Jews were under Roman rule. 
So they were occupied by Rome, and the Romans had this system of collecting taxes called tax farming. Now, what they would do is they would assess a district and see, like, hey, maybe this is how much we could tax this place, and then they would assign a number. And what would happen is they would get tax collectors to bid on collecting the taxes, and what would happen is the tax collectors would give the Romans the chunk of money that they said that they would collect, and then the tax collectors get to keep the rest. So as you can imagine, this opens up the floodgates for taking advantage of people. And this was further compounded by poor communication back in that time. So people really had no idea exactly how much they were supposed to be paying in taxes. And so there was two types of taxes, the stated taxes and something called the duties. The stated taxes were the poll tax, which was a tax on anybody who was alive. So if you were ages 14 through ages 65 as a man or 12 through 65 as a woman, you just had to pay a tax for being alive. I don't know why they had two extra years for the women, but they costed more than... I don't know. That, no, that, I'm not going to go there. The, then there's a ground tax. They would tax goods like grain and wine, and you had to give a portion of that to Rome. And then there's an income tax. The income tax was only 1%, 1% of their annual income. So that sounds kind of nice, you know, compared to today. It's a lot more than 1% that we give. But then there was the other area of taxes called the duties. Now, the duties consisted of taxing people to use certain roads or harbors or goods, imports and exports. And here, there was no really fixed amount So there would just be an arbitrary amount of money that someone could collect, and they had this arbitrary amount of power. So what they would do is they would say, hey, if you want to use my road, give me a thousand bucks. So the tax collectors, as you can imagine, were not very popular, which is quite understandable because I can't imagine if we did that today how unpopular those tax collectors would be. But something that's important to remember is that these tax collectors came from their community. So these were Jewish tax collectors doing this to their people. And as soon as you became a tax collector, you were not allowed to, be, to represent as a judge or a witness on, in a court case. You were also not allowed to be in the synagogue. They would kick you out of the synagogue. So they were considered the lowliest people in society, the most despised. So imagine how Levi feels when Jesus comes up to him and he says, hey you, follow me. I would imagine it was shocking, but that feeling was probably erased quickly by utter joy and happiness and thankfulness. So he stands up and he leaves everything never to return. And now the people around him are like, are you serious? This guy? You're choosing this guy to follow you? I think at some point in all of our lives, we have all been either uh, unliked or we have unliked someone. right? I don't think anybody escapes that. Uh, And if you do, I would like to meet you because I want to know where you're hanging out. There must be a cool crowd of people. I remember when I was in seventh grade, I think I reached my climax of being unliked. Now let me explain. I, to put it nicely, I was a joker. I goofed off, 
And I remember one time in my social studies class, I'm sitting down in my, at the time, he was my football coach, my social studies teacher, and, and later to be my eighth grade basketball coach. And I'm, I'm goofing off, you know, getting some giggles from some friends, trying to be popular. And then I proceeded to get a little bit too mouthy. And my teacher looks over at me and he goes, Taylor, you just earned the class 25 extra vocab words. And I'm like, this guy's not serious. So I keep acting up. And he goes, 50. At this point, I literally left the room and I sat down outside and I was like, I'm done. I quit. You can imagine my feeling and the feeling I had when even my best friends were like, oh my gosh, I'm not talking to this guy anymore. He just earned me 50 extra pieces of homework that I have to do now because he couldn't shut his mouth. Now this is a silly example, but I'm sure some of you can relate a little bit to this situation. You've either been on the side of being unliked or you've been the one who says, this guy, really? Get out. Compared to Levi, this is, um, it is silly. But I can imagine just a little bit how Jesus felt or how Levi felt when Jesus said, hey, despite all these shortcomings and how much people don't like you, I accept you. Come follow me. So Jesus was uh, now sitting with, um, sitting with Levi in his house, and it says, as he reclined at the table in his house, if I can just stop right there, I wish we used this, <laughs> this, these words, reclined, I don't even know what that means, because I think of like a big table and a bunch of recliners, and just... <laughs> And he puts his feet up, and they're all just chilling. Now, that, that is not what was happening. But you, what he's trying to say is this is not just like a formal meal, right? Like, these guys are sitting on the ground, hanging out, having a feast. This is Jesus with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. So it says, as he reclined at table in his house, that's Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So the scribes here could not believe that Jesus would associate in a very intimate form of sharing a meal with these people. Those who were unversed in the law, those who did not follow the rules correctly, how could Jesus be in contact with them? Then Jesus says, in my opinion, some of the absolute most beautiful words in Scripture. He doesn't just slam the scribes and just say, just argue them back. He says in verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Wow. The beginning of the statement makes sense, common sense. If you're sick, you need a physician. We all go to Dr. Mike. We bug him. I'm sorry. If you're sick, you can ask him. But don't bug him after hours. Um, but Jesus isn't getting at the physical side of things here. He's getting at something far deeper. It's important to him that people are healed, absolutely. But what he wants you to see is that he is way more concerned with 
the health of people's hearts, with their souls. Jesus is speaking ironically to the scribes. Even the most religious elite of that day were still sinners, just like the tax collectors. But they didn't recognize that. They did not recognize that in their heart. They believed that they were righteous because of their good works, their devotion, their ability to keep the law. They thought that they were saving themselves to an extent. And Jesus is saying that he came to save those who recognize their need for a savior. The brokenhearted and the pained and the struggling and the hurt and the downtrodden the lowly, the humble, the sick, those who know in and of themselves you are nothing, that is who Jesus said, I'm coming to save you. And that's fantastic news. Because when we really come to terms with who we are as people, we realize that we are broken. We look around and we see that the world is broken. If anyone can honestly look inside themselves and say, hey, you know what? I'm actually pretty great. <laughs> Perfect timing. <laughs> if you're really you are lost if you think you're really good. Um, man, we did not plan that. <laughs> so I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I'll say, hey, you can look around inside yourself and say, you know what? No, actually, I'm okay. But then let's take another step out. Who can look around at the world and say, you know what, we've got it figured out. As Nathan was talking about, you know, events are happening weekly that are proof, farther proof, that we have something at the very least wrong, at the very least massively wrong, And I think even if you move past the internal to the outside and you pass those tests in your own head and you say, yeah, no, no, whatever, everything is still good, I still will challenge you. I do not think that anyone can leave this world without feeling pain or suffering at some point. I heard from some, I cannot remember who said it, but they said something along the lines of everybody leaves this world with a limp. And what he means by that is not an actual limp, but he says that we all have pain and loss. At some point, you cannot get to the end of your life only experiencing good things. So we see we're all broken. In Romans, in Romans 3, it says we, have all, we all fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. No one is righteous on their own. Then you look at verse 17, Doesn't that make you want to just fall down and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, God. I am a sinner, and I need you. When you come with that heart, Jesus offers you more grace and mercy and love than you ever can imagine. When you accept Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, then you are seen as righteous in God's eyes, But on this side of heaven, you're still not going to be perfect. There is residue of sin in our lives. So daily, we have to come before him and say, I need you, Jesus, because I cannot do it on my own. He took a far greater step to relate to us by stepping out of heaven to come be amongst 
humanity, Jesus Christ, he took that step, which is far greater than this picture we see of him going and walking to a social outcast. And that should swell up, I think, some type of joy inside of us, some emotion that when you really understand that, you're like, man, this fills me with, with something. I don't know exactly what it is, but I'm happy. There is great joy that we can have in Christ when we come to terms with this. And the last chunk of this passage, as we move into the second point, the joy we can have in Christ, it's interesting. Um, as I was looking at these two sections, I was like, man, you know, these could kind of be completely separate. But as I read through it and studied through it more, I realized that um, there is some absolute cohesion there. So we see that the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees were fasting. Now, in the Old Testament, the only time where it is commanded that everybody fasts is on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16.24. This is a national day of repentance and forgiveness. But by the time of this account, the Pharisees had come along and said, "Uh, if you want to be a godly person, then you're going to fast twice a week, on the second and the fifth day. This came from along with uh, some some other ideas out there that... Um, this false idea that religion was to be solemn and serious and kind of a joyless affair. And Jesus, in his normal fashion, answers with a thought-provoking question. He says, can the wedding guests fast, fast while the bridegroom is with them? And he goes on to say, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and in that day they will fast. How in the world can there be fasting when the Son of God is present? We read in, uh, in Revelation 19 and, and in 21 that when Jesus comes back and he makes all things new, there's going to be serious rejoicing um, for those who are in Christ, will be united with him forever, and we will be partying to the glory of God in the most holy, worshipful way, and it's going to be awesome. And we learn in Uh, in Revelation 19, that there's this marriage supper of the Lamb, right? There's this picture of all these guests coming and sitting down at this big marriage supper where Jesus Christ is. And then in Revelation, or in uh, Ephesians 5, we learn that marriage on earth is supposed to image Christ and his church. So there's all of these, um, these pictures that Jesus Christ is the groom, And the church is his bride. So there is this uh, beautiful picture just of the deepest intimacy. So Jesus is asking, how can there be fasting? I even think today there is kind of an unfortunate stereotype um, that religion is just supposed to be completely super solemn and um, a lot of times only serious. and that there's not so much room for joy and laughter. And I don't think that where Jesus Christ is worshipped, that ought to be the case. Now there is absolutely a time, don't hear me, don't miss this, there is a time for grief and repentance, reflection, and yes, even fasting. That is actually a very important discipline. But the purpose is to bring you in closer communion with God, not to show that, I, that you're holy. The point is to be filled up with God. 
to strip away the things that are distracting. And as, as I was thinking about this, I, I had to reflect a lot on um, a lot of the things that distract me in this day and age. And I was just thinking about how we're the only society in the history of the world that has information and entertainment at our fingertips in great multitudes all the time. And how often I spend so much time watching reruns of The Office or reruns of this or that. And now there's nothing wrong with watching TV. Don't hear me say that either. But in the volume with which we watch it, can be a problem. And I realize that that's a distraction for me and sometimes I might need to let go of that so I can be filled up more with Christ. What Jesus is saying here is that he's not condemning fasting, but he is challenging the attitude behind it. At large, there should be an underlying joy even in these times of fasting and pain an underlying joy that we have that surrounds and infiltrates us and this body in Christ. There should be joy because if you have put your faith in Jesus, then you are more than a wedding guest. You are actually a part of the collective bride of Christ. This should produce joy. And when times are hard, there absolutely will be those times of pain and suffering there is still that deep sense of joy that one day it will be okay. And we can face these struggles together and individually with that, knowing that that's coming. So Jesus moves on and he gives us uh, a few more analogies to show us this, this issue that's present. Um, we get these examples of the cloth and the wine, the wine skin. Now, at first glance, it, it did not make a ton of sense to me. You know, for years as a kid, I'd be like, what is this stuff? What's he talking about? But as I, as I read it, um, it now makes absolute perfect sense. So we're going to read uh, 21 and 22 one more time, those verses. It says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So if you take a piece of cloth, an old piece of cloth that has been worn and stretched and moved and been wet and dried, and then you put a new piece of cloth that hasn't gone through that, and you patch it on there, when the rubber hits the road, that is going to tear again. So what Jesus is saying that the new cloth that he brings cannot be interwoven in the old religious ways, the fibers do not connect. Then he gets into an even more powerful picture with the wineskins. Back in the day, they would take the skin of goats, kind of gross, and they would fashion them together so they could hold new wine. And when new wine was put into them, it would be fermenting. So it would be expanding as those gases are released. It would expand. And if you put new wine into an old wineskin that's brittle, already been stretched, it's inflexible now, it's going to burst the new life or wine that Jesus is talking about here that Christ brings is expanding. Maybe you've felt this before. Maybe you've felt that when Christ comes into your life and fills these new wineskins, you have stretched limits. 
Non-essential things are kind of pushed out to the periphery. You have new affections, new desires, and new loves. I'm going to borrow an example from Kent Hughes in his commentary on uh, the Gospel of Mark that I really liked. Um, If you've ever been in the woods in the early spring and there's still leaves falling, right? Have you ever seen that? It's kind of weird because you're like, why are there still leaves on here? The wind didn't knock them down. The winter didn't knock them down, but they're still falling. And you're like, what is pushing this deadness away? What it is, is when the new life is coming into the tree and the roots start to take on this life and the sap gets moving and the water's pumping through the trunk and it goes into the limbs and into the twigs, it pushes all of the deadness out and the leaves fall away. So even the strongest winter that can't knock the leaves off, or the leaves that can survive the strongest winter, cannot survive this new life that the tree is given. This is what happens when Christ saves us. And the Holy Spirit begins to dwell inside of you. And makes you new. Romans 8, 10 through 11 says this, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit of him, that is the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, dwells in you if you believe in Jesus Christ. Our old self, any growth that you had, or experiences, or comforts, or hatreds, or loves, and sins, that, those are old wineskins. When Christ makes you a new creation and you put your faith in him, you allow these areas to be changed. And you're filled with this new wine given to you, this new life that you have in Christ. And then you can experience this joy that goes beyond anything you have ever, ever felt. And this transformation and this joy is going to bring some new affections in you, new ways of viewing yourself in relation to God, new ways of viewing yourself in relation to others, new ways of viewing people both in and outside of your community. Namely, you're going to be seeing the world as Jesus sees it. So we're going to loop back now for, the, for my, my final point here, back to uh, the center of this passage, um, how we can relate to the world. So we've seen that Jesus has related to us in a greater way than we can ever imagine. He came not to call the righteous, those who think they're okay on their own power, but sinners. And even though at our core, apart from Christ, we are all sinners, he came, chose to, sh- to show his love and associate with us, And now we can have joy. And what, what, what does this mean practically? Honestly, as I had to wrestle with this passage, I had to reckon with even some things in my own life. Um, as I saw this, Jesus calling Levi, and what does that mean for us today? And I think our natural tendency, we've talked about this, is to be around those who make us comfortable. That makes sense. And I think it's interesting, though, that Jesus decides to go to those who are the most marginalized and despised in the society. 
He chose to call these people to himself. Throughout scripture we see, and we don't have time to do it, how God uses numerous amounts of people who in the world's eyes would be very, very weak, unlikely tools. You know, every time that even I come and I step into this pulpit, I'm like, my gosh, I am in way over my head up here. But in a weird way, it's actually a really good place to be. Because when I recognize how weak I am, honestly, how inadequate I am, I think that's when God works best. But why does he do this? So he can have the glory, and not me, (laughs) which is awesome. Whoop-de-doo if I get up here and people go, oh, nice job, nice job today, speaking. That's not what's important. What's important is that God gets the glory and that people's lives are changed, period. So when we look around the city, there are obvious differences in people in our schools, and our workplaces, wherever we choose to hang out in leisure time. Um, there's a diversity of people. Some of them, by the world standards, are cool. Some of them are uncool. Some are popular. Some are not. Some are unacceptable. Some are acceptable. There are those who uh, may be difficult or annoying, kind of hard to get along with. And I think we learn something from the life, life of Christ and how we are to relate to all people. If you've been saved by and tasted this grace in Jesus Christ, that moves you to get to know all people. Even those who are difficult. This joy we have in Christ we can rest in, and that will propel us to live lives that shine before this world. And we will not have any inkling of discrimination or indifference amongst ourselves. But I think what's even more important is not just how we relate to everyone in society, but how we actually relate to one another in this room, in the church. In John 13, we learn that we are to love one another as Christ loved us, and Jesus says, By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. That is a serious statement. Because what he is saying is people will look in, and if they see that you're loving one another, they will understand that you're Jesus' disciples. If you're not, we have some stuff to reckon with. We read in Galatians three twenty six through 28 Uh, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is it doesn't matter who you are. Your skin color, the family you came from, your education level, your income level. If you're in Christ... You have the power to understand you are on a level playing field with absolutely everybody else because you are nothing apart from Jesus. Christ came to call sinners. So naturally, there's going to be some issues amongst us. Right? When a bunch of people come together who are recovering sinners, still struggling with that, there will be problems. We are not promised ease or comfort We are not promised a neat little club either to just hang out till the end of our days on this earth. We're going to grind one another's gears. 
We're going to get on each other's nerves. We're going to offend each other. It's going to happen. But we can recognize that we also are sinners who need this grace. So we can face it together. We can fight sin. We can lovingly call one another out and challenge this sin. Even though that's really, really, really hard to do. Because we have been given the most beautiful, life-changing love from Jesus Christ, and we are able to now interact with one another in a way that is so otherworldly. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, I hope that you will take this time to let him be the Lord of your life. The reality is that you cannot be righteous on your own. No matter how much you do, or how hard you try, or how good you think you are, you will fall short of measuring up in holiness. Also, don't think that you've done too much, that you're too far gone, because that is not the case at all. You can do no amount of sin. No amount of sin is too great that Jesus Christ cannot come and make you whole again. He bridged a gap way bigger than a social one. He stepped out of heaven, took on flesh, lived amongst us, died the death we deserved after living a perfect life that we cannot live, and he rose again, defeated Satan, sin, and death, and one day is going to come and make all things new, and now you can be in communion with him, be filled up with joy, and your life can be changed. Those of us who are Christians in the room need to hear this message still. You've been filled up. You have these new wineskins. You have the power to be joyful and loving. Break down any barriers that you find. And you can let that propel you to joy and... Excuse me. And mission. Swallow a bug or something. You can let that propel you to joy and mission beyond things that... uh, That you can just never imagine could have been done. We are so thankful that Jesus came to call sinners like every one of us in this room. So now we're going to sit, we're not going to sit, we're going to stand and we're going to take communion. Um, This is a time where we are reminded of this sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. Um, Here at Redeemer, we come forward, we take a piece of the bread, dip it into the juice or wine, however your conscience leads you. Um, The wine is on the cups marked with twine. The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for you. And the juice or wine represents his blood that was spilled for you. Um, This is a a time where where Christians come forward and take this. If you have not yet accepted Christ, then then I I really encourage you to, to go. We have pastors and prayer responders in the back or take time there at your seat and really just reflect upon um, on this good news that, that can be for you. So, um, yeah, let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you just for this day. Lord, we thank you for a little bit of cooler weather. We thank you for the rain. We thank you that you came to save sinners. I am deeply, deeply humbled and grateful that you did because I am nothing apart from you. We are nothing apart from you, and we are so overjoyed that you came to 
make us new, to reconcile us to yourself and also to one another. I pray that as we go from here, you would fill us by the power of your Holy Spirit with joy unimaginable and that you would help us to break down any walls that we may have put up in our minds or amongst one another. And I pray that you help us to love each other well, propel us to mission, help us to relate to everyone who you bring into our life. We thank you, Lord, that you stepped out of heaven to come and save us, to reconcile us to yourself. These things we pray, Father God, are in Christ's name. Amen.